You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. 6% is what Clippers fans are thinking about today. That is the percentage of teams that go down 2-0 and go on to win their series. It's happened in 426 playoff series in which one team led another 2-0. And the team that was down only won 27 of those series. 6.3%. And most of the time, it was a team... That was the lower seed that fell behind on the road and came back to steal a couple games. The Clippers have to do it away, facing a Mavs team that everybody certainly thinks they tanked to get to face. And boy, is that biting them in the butt. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, and it's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. And it doesn't get any straighter than this, Fitz. The Clippers are cursed. That's it. I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. You could change the coach. You could change the players. You could change the owner. It does not matter. This team can't show up when it counts. And I I truly can't figure it out. It's easy to just say Clippers going to clip. But why? That's the hardest part of it because Clippers going to clip is such a cliche at this point. And one thing I hate about, and we do this in all sports, I hate when we take past failures and put it on current regimes, especially when those regimes mm-hmm. had nothing to do with what happened in the past. Like I, I could not care less about what uh, the failures of the Clippers in the 70s compared to the failures of the Clippers in the 80s compared to the failures of the Clippers yeah. right now. It's like this comes quarterbacks. Well, would you yeah. stop bringing it up? They're all different. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at some point, you've got to look at this and say, okay, how does it go this wrong? Because Kawhi and Paul George were supposed to be better than this. Remember, we're not that far removed from having real conversations about why the Clippers were built in a better way than the Lakers. And suddenly, because the Clippers had equal star power or close to and better depth, they were going to be the team better positioned in L.A. Now they find themselves down in a in 2 nothing hole to a Dallas team that feels like it's one giant. Like, Luka is one giant and everybody else is okay it just depends on the day that one giant is taking down Kawhi and Paul George and it doesn't make any sense like none of it on paper makes any sense but the Mavs flat out looked like the better team last night than the Clippers and the Clippers have to be panicked at this point Spain and Fitz Sarah Spain Jason Fitz you pointed out Luka Doncic averaging 35 points nine assists eight and a half rebounds per game The team is shooting 50% on three-pointers. Their desperate attempts to shut down Luka is leaving other guys open and allowing them to find success. And the Clippers' poor shooting isn't helping them at all. They had the best three-point shooting season, perhaps in NBA history, but now they're shooting below 33% in the playoffs on their three-point attempts. And again, it can't be forgotten that this team slid their way down into this matchup believing they could handle it. And uh, here's what Ty Lue, the head coach of the Clippers, said about being down 0-2. I'm not concerned. Like I said, they got to win four games. And, you know, you come in on an on a opposing team's floor and you play, um, there's no pressure on you to make shots because you're supposed to, you know, you just try to come in and steal a game or steal two games. But now they got to go home and try to keep up the same shooting. So um, it's easy to come on the road and do that when there's no pressure on you. So we'll see you in game three. Okay, nice try, though. I will give him some credit for the political spin on trying to claim that there is less pressure on the team coming in to shoot well than there will be on his team down 0-2 on the road. I mean, talk about pressure. You are not going to be strolling in to the Mavs building feeling good about yourself because you're away, the way he's trying to spin it that the Mavs felt coming into their building. And 
Nobody has given it to the Clippers and Ty Lue and Kawhi and playoff P more than Brian Windhorse. Here he is on Greeny. Not only are they disappointing with their intensity level, the, the, the tanking that they did last week flabbergasted me. I've never seen a more gutless approach to the playoffs. And, and, and again, you can't give me anything about other teams' tank. This was a unique situation for reasons I don't need to get into. I've never seen such a gutless thing. Um, I can't believe that, Jerry, that a team that employs Jerry West would sign off on something like that. And Ooh. he continued. I don't understand what the game plan was. He did not have the team ready to play. He did not have a defensive game plan to put them in a position to win. And he comes out after the game and says he's not concerned, or at least Paul George said that. I mean, that's just a lie. The Clippers almost, I can't believe how little they're getting out of what should be an incredibly special team. The way they let it go down last year and the way they have approached this series, not just when since it started, but what they were doing last week is just heartless, gutless. Ty Lue has ring as a coach and as a player. Kawhi Leonard has two finals MVPs. Paul George has hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm telling you, this two-year span, if they get knocked out here, will put a stain on them that they will never wash off. Woo! Never, Mm. never wash off. That's the Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. Uh, Fitz, we're going to talk more about the Clippers clipping uh, a little bit later. And and Om Young Masuk going to join us for a little half-rand and see if he can explain what the hell is happening with the redheaded stepchild of the Lakers. But speaking of the Lakers, quick recap on that one. A lot of what we talked about in yesterday's show came true. You needed AD to step up and have a big game. He is the difference maker. You need LeBron to be more aggressive and not shoot from the outside all game long. And you can't count out the effect of CP3 not being able to go down the stretch. That team looked completely different without him. And that was a tight game. They come out of a timeout and it was maybe five or six straight bad possessions for the Suns that took them out of it. And that, to me, felt a lot of it like they were disjointed because of CP3. It was turnovers. It was bad shots. And they gave the game away there. Yeah, it was youth uh, to me. The first time that I've really looked at the Suns and thought, wow, they look like they're in over their head because you're right. They, they found themselves in that second half, felt like repeatedly down by seven or nine or seven or nine, and they would crawl back. And once they crawled back, they got back into the game. I thought, man, they're, they're going to do this. They're going to find a way to get it done. And then all it took was three or four straight possessions where they just couldn't get a good look. And it just felt like in that moment, for the first time, experience really mattered. You know, and that, that without CP3, they don't have that person that can sort of come in, calm every, everybody down, and just say, hey, this is what we're running, this is how we're doing it. You felt that for the first time at the end of that game. And it was sort of heartbreaking. Uh, I love the fact that it makes the series better, but it was heartbreaking for me in the moment uh, to watch a Suns team sort of have to learn there. You hate to think that you lost opportunity for a learning process, but that's what it felt like they were living. Yeah, it. Man, this this is making this particular series all the more fascinating for me because you saw the adjustments from the Lakers and how that worked out, but the Suns were by no means out of that game, even with a better-performing LeBron and AD uh, and Schroeder doing his thing. So I'm, I'm fascinated to see what the coaches do next and how they adjust because if, if you know Chris Paul can get just healthy enough to be out there leading the charge again, um, I think this can go a little bit, uh, you know, the distance. Um, as for as for the, the Clippers, well, we'll get to that later. Coming up next, tonight's games. Does Gotham have its newest villain? And is the <laughs> villain embracing that role? It's next on Spain and Fitz. 
You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Trying to be added to that list. You got Michael a couple times putting a hurting on him in the playoffs, of course. Michael. Kareem, uh, Michael? I, I, I'm sorry, I, Michael Jordan. Oh, okay, uh, around these parts, uh, no. he does not need more than one name. I could go with Michael. <laughs> I could go with Jordan. I could go with MJ. I could go with his airness. I could go with the GOAT. I could go with Michael Jeffrey Jordan. I could, you know, any number of these things would be fine. It's Spain and Fitz, by the way. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance uh, with the Knicks and Hawks round two tipping off at 730 on TNT tonight. We look at Trey Young as the next villain, putting up 32, including the game winner and an epic shush for Spike Lee as MSG was rocking. And you know me, Fitz. I am never going to jump at the chance to applaud Knicks fans, who I find to be very sensitive, but they were crushing their return. It was fun to watch. They were hype. It was incredible, incredible energy. And then Trey happened. And I'll tell you what, he is not backing down from the villain label he has been given because of that output. He is sinking right into it. His dad said he is proud and ready and willing to be the guy that everyone in MSG hates. Uh, and, you know, if that fuels him, then the Knicks should be pretty worried about game two tonight. You know, there's just certain guys that love to play that role. And you know my love for 80s wrestling. And I was watching a documentary about one of the guys recently, and he was talking about how nothing was better than when the whole crowd hated you. He just loved to have that level of of just oomph from knowing that he got the crowd worked into a lather and everybody was booing him. I think Trey Young might in some ways be in that same category. And frankly, I love all of this. Again, I, I, I don't care if the Knicks win or lose. I don't care if the Hawks win or lose. That's usually not something I have any passion for. I got a lot of love for the Garden. You know that. But realistically... I want Trey Young to go out and just do awful things to the Knicks tonight because it makes for a great story. At some point, if we watch Trey go out and just lay 50 and get another game-winning shot and shush Spike Lee again, a second shushing, all of a sudden now we go from mini-villain to mega-villain, and that just <laughs> makes all of it more interesting for me. The, the, the more Trey Young can get under the skin of Knicks fans over the course of tonight, the better the rest of this series will be. Derek Rose trying to downplay it. I don't know if just being honest or if it was because he doesn't want to give him any more fire in his belly. But Rose said, that's basketball. When did the league get so soft? He said, you know, we're Ooh. just, he said, you know, he came in, we played a great game and the crowd is supposed to do that. His reaction is supposed to be that way. It's supposed to amp up and bring that atmosphere and that environment to where it is right now. I mean, that's what I'm used to. And he talked about people, you know, throwing drinks on his parents and people's moms and the game's kind of changed since then, but it doesn't phase him and shouldn't phase the team. It certainly phased the fans and they will be coming with some extra ire for Trey tonight. And you're right. It's a great story, Fitz, if Trey does it again tonight, especially on a last-second shot, or just torches him for 40-something. But it's also a great story if Julius Randle shows up on the heels of his most improved player honor and becomes the most improved player in the series, was not the player we expected him to be in Game 1. And Kendrick Perkins, uh, I don't think Kendrick Perkins... Um, I thought we had someone talking about how um, about how Julius Randle maybe just tried a little too hard. What we do have for sure is Brian Windhorst on Greeny saying he thinks this is going to be a tie game. This Knicks team was not expected to even make the playoffs, and here they are hosting a, a first-round playoff series. Um, they're overjoyed. So the, the, the scene is perfect for this kind of action. And the thing about it is, Bob, and I think this is going to be the case in this series, 
the way Trey Young plays puts pressure on the officials, and the officials make calls, and it's going to be a factor in this series. It was one of the reasons why the NBA slapped Nate McMillan with a fine last week when he made a reference to favoritism to the Knicks. The, the, the league knows that this is going to be a series where the officiating on Trey Young is huge. So you think there's intensity now? Wait until they come back for a game five, because I'm expecting it to be maybe a 2-2 series coming back to New York, and the Knicks fans are tired of watching Trey Young get whistles for four games. <laughs> right. That is when we're going to see some edge. But certainly tonight is going to be potentially special. Sarah, I, I think also, by the way, Randall's the second player to win the most improved player in his seventh NBA season or later ever, yeah. which is such a statement to his greatness. And I fully expect him to come back and have a big game. I think part of the reason this all feels so different is the context of the power of the brand of the Knicks and the fact that they haven't been in the playoffs for so long. So now one bad playoff game wouldn't usually define somebody that just won a most improved player award, but it does when it's the Knicks in the garden. One big shush is not an epic sort of end to a game, but it does when it's against the Knicks in the garden and they haven't been in the playoffs forever. It shows how magnified the attention will be on everything that happens happens throughout the course of this series and how this series will prevent and present the opportunity for heroes and villains to be made and stars to be born throughout the process of it because that's what happens when this game isn't taking place for example in indiana but is instead taking place in madison square garden and with fans back at the building that was a huge part of making that part of lore here's quinn richardson this is what i was looking for on barton Hahn talking julius randall i think he wanted it a little too bad I think um, I don't think he was afraid of the moment. I don't think it was anything like that. I don't, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that, that you sometimes you want. He's been that guy. He's been the superstar, the all star for them all year. And I think he wanted to go out there in his first game and lead and, and, and you know put an exclamation on you know what he's doing there. And um, you know it just didn't work out for him. I think he'll be better the next game. Yeah, I mean it's a very nice way of putting it, and I guess. You know, Julius Randle, as much as his star has ascended this year, is not in a position, Fitz, of getting the same kind of flack as other stars for having a bad game. Um, But he will certainly be hearing it from Knicks fans and the media if it's another egg tonight. Oh, my God. Like, what's the level of patience, even on the most improved player, if you're a Knicks right. fan, when you come into Just this and say, okay. for a playoff series win. He will, he will be a bum by the second quarter if he hasn't started <laughs> well. Guys, a bum can't play at all. Like, that's immediately where it will go. Yeah, they will actually be the ones throwing drinks on his mother. They won't be <laughs> looking for the opponents. Uh, it's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We do have Knicks Hawks, 7.30 on TNT tonight. Um, and the other game is going to be a fascinating one because we get the return of Donovan Mitchell as the Grizzlies take on the Jazz, 10 Eastern. And we heard about Mitchell being frustrated with the team, sort of unexpectedly pulling him for game one. Kendrick Perkins says won't be easy when he gets the return tonight. I don't want to deny that Donovan Mitchell is a star from what we witnessed last year in the playoffs. But look, coming back off an injury and having played at at a high level, having been able to get those reps in, I got to take John Moran on this one because we have to realize Dylan Brooks is not no pushover when it comes on the defensive side of things. And he just went through having to guard Steph Curry, who's probably the toughest guard in the NBA right now for for us, anybody having to match up with him one-on-one. And with Donovan Mitchell coming back without getting those reps in, and Memphis already been playing at an extremely high level for over a month now because they had to get into the play-in tournament, play the play-in tournament, and now into the postseason, 
it's going to be hard for Donovan Mitchell to stand out tonight. It fits to what we were just talking about. Ja putting together some moments here early that are giving him a bit of playoff lore as as a young player too. Yeah, well, and, and this young Memphis team has the thing that powers so many young teams that play well early in the playoffs, right? Some spirit of we can do this belief in self and uh, a level of confidence that, you know, Monica McNutt had talked a little bit about that last week with us, and it still carries through. I mean, if Memphis can – if Donovan Mc, Mitchell is – at all rusty and Memphis pulls off a win, then they're going to go home to a crowd that is absolutely going to be rabid and ravenous in a city that is every bit as ready for playoff basketball as New York is for Memphis as as psyched as they are there. Like there's a real opportunity for the Grizzlies to do the unexpected. I still think Utah's a better team, but I can't get what, what Memphis did to him in game one out of my head. Yeah, I mean, the Grizzlies are outperforming my expectations, that's for sure. And that's no slight at John Morant. We know he's a dog. It's just I didn't think they were ready for this yet. And we saw it against the Warriors, and we saw it in game one. Now we see what happens when the Jazz are closer to full strength, even though, again, we'll see how Mitchell comes back in this return. But uh, to your point, uh, Jaw's another guy who seems just like Trey in terms of fueled by doubt, fueled by people who maybe want to see him as a villain. And he is more than ready to go head-to-head with the best. So uh, that series, a fun one as well. Again, Knicks, Hawks, 730 on TNT. Remember, NBA playoffs are on ESPN Radio. Tune in tomorrow night as the Heat host the Bucks, presented by Indeed. Coverage begins at 7 p.m. Eastern on most ESPN radio stations. Coming up, we keep wanting to talk about this, and we finally found someone to give us some insight. Are the Olympics still in jeopardy? A major newspaper called for them to be canceled today in Japan. We'll get into it next. It's Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Even though it's right around the corner, I'm not sure we can say definitively that it's going to get here. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, and we're going to head over to the Goodyear hotline. We've been looking for an expert that can help us break down everything that's happening with the Olympics and uh, I can't think of anybody better to do that than Dave Shining from the Washington Post. Dave, thanks for the time. Dave has a great article out on WashingtonPost.com right now about Olympians and the tough decisions that they're going to have to make over the course of this summer. So, Dave, let's start with the sort of the elephant in the room. How confident are you that we're even going to get a, an Olympic uh, ceremony this summer? Well, I'm not confident at all. Um, first of all, thank, thanks for having me on. It's great to be with you guys. Um I, I, I'm not confident at all. I mean, you know, the the only reason I think that this the Olympics will go on is is just you know cynical money grab. You know, I mean, um, all signs, all logic points to postponing them again, canceling them, whatever you have to do, and not going into a country, Japan, that is is experiencing the worst COVID outbreak of the entire pandemic. Um, but you know, it's there's billions and billions of dollars at stake. And ultimately, I've come to learn in this business that money ultimately wins out. And that's why I think this will still go on. Dave, nice to talk to you. It's been uh, since we were hanging with Jack Nicholas, receiving a prestigious award together, <laughs> the Dan Jenkins Medal for Excellence in Sports Writing. I just in case anyone didn't know that both of us are excellent at sports writing. Uh, Great that Googling. Oh, yeah. that wow. in. <laughs> Yeah, we were meddled together alongside Jack Nicholas, who yeah, hung out with right. us. Uh, it was pretty fun. Uh, Dave, I agree with you. And, and what's been interesting is these little moments throughout the last couple months where you've heard hospitals putting up banners that say to cancel the Olympics. You hear prominent figures. You hear that they're in a state of emergency in major cities. Now you've got 
a newspaper that's one of the sponsors of the Olympics coming out and saying they should be canceled. What entity would need to be on the side of cancellation for that actually to happen? Well, you're right about um, the various ways that momentum is building um, for a cancellation or a postponement. You know, um, the, the newspaper coming out against it, the, one of the most prominent newspapers in Japan coming out against it was a major thing. Um, every day seems to bring another prominent Japanese politician, you know, governors, um, health officials, um, you know, advocating for canceling. Um, you know, the U.S. State Department just put out a level four travel advisory against Japan, basically a do not travel to Japan uh, advisory for American citizens. Um, things are building. Uh, but to answer your question, it would take the IOC, I think, to, to cancel this thing. I don't know that the Japanese government, um, number one, would would do it, would 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 force try to force a cancellation. And, and number two, would be able to because of the agreement that they have with the IOC to, to put on a games. Um, I think that ultimately and again, this is money talking here. Um, which you can never go wrong, assuming that money wins out. Um, I think it would take the IOC um, coming out, you know, in favor of a cancellation for it to happen, which I don't think is going to happen. So, if there's no cancellation to the article that you wrote, Dave Shannon, by the way, joining us from the Washington Post, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, Olympians are being forced to make a very difficult decision right now because if there are an Olymp- the Olympics do go on. There will be constraints on who's allowed to go and how they can even bring their family or the children they may be nursing, so many of these other factors. How are Olympians going to be making this decision to participate if there is an Olympics to participate in? Well, I think that the overwhelming majority will would go. Um, it, you know uh, you, you know how that these athletes train their entire lives. Uh, the, the, the four-year Olympic cycle, uh, the quad, or in this case, it's a five-year cycle because of the postponement last year. But, I mean, that is um, religion. It's, 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 their, it's, their, it's their reason for being, you know, and they are going to go, I think, in overwhelming numbers. Um, you, you made mention of Alephine Tuliamuk, a, a U.S. Olympic uh, you know, trials champion in the marathon, uh, had a baby four months ago, basically. Uh, this baby will be six months old and change uh, in, in, in July, August, when the Olympics roll around. And at this point, she is being told she cannot bring her baby, who, who you know, whom she is uh, breastfeeding and, and intends to, to breastfeed, um, you know, during her trip to Tokyo. So, yeah, th- there are going to be some really tough calls, and, and I don't know what she's going to do, I you know. I don't think she's ready to, to, to make uh, that call. Um, she's really hopeful that the rules are going to change for her. Uh, I did talk to her via Zoom a couple weeks ago, and, and, and that's her stance at this point. Um, but, you know, there are going to be really tough choices, and it's not just her. There are other Olympians with small children from, you know, possible Olympians, I guess, Serena Williams. We don't know what she's going to do, you know. Alex Morgan, um, you know, there, there's a, there's a handful anyway, and, and they're and they're very very tough decisions that, frankly, you know, nobody should really be forced to make. Great story about that on the Washington Post. Uh, you can look for it uh, that Dave Shannon wrote, and it really does bring to light, uh, just add it to the list of question marks about why we're doing this and whether it should be done, and certainly the idea that you would have a six month old child that couldn't be with. 
uh, with uh, the mother because of rules. Um, there needs to be petitions that are agreed upon and, 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 and offerings being made um, to those athletes that are dealing with this. Dave Shannon of the Washington Post is with us here on Spain and Fitz. Dave, I find it fascinating but understandable that the Japanese contract for the Olympics would prohibit them from canceling it themselves, even if it were in service of protecting their nation and their people. Um, have you heard any athletes who seem concerned about that? Because you're to your point, all of this training and the timing around it can often make people not use common sense. I just saw an awful story of a, a, a long distance, one of those ultra marathon races that happened out in China. The heat was so bad that 21 people died racing and I, my, I, I would imagine that they just thought, I've trained for this, my body's ready, I'll figure it out. And then they pushed themselves despite signs that they weren't doing well. And I feel like it's not an exact analogy, but the same idea applies here, that it's almost like you have to protect them from themselves in terms of the life work that's gone into trying to go there. Yeah, you know, exactly. And, and I mean, you know, there are athletes who have already said they're not going to go. Um, you know, I, I, I saw a story a few days ago, maybe a week ago, about a, uh, a road cyclist, uh, US, Team USA cyclist, uh, who's going to skip the Olympics. Um, you know, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm no, I'm not a, I'm not a health expert by any means. I, I, you know, but, but, but what I've read is that, you know, even if you're vaccinated, some of these variants that might be, um, you know, currently spreading in, in Japan, you know might be resistant, you know, or, or that is a fear some people have. Um, the New England Journal of Medicine just put out um, a, a story um, today or yesterday uh, that that stopped short of, of calling for a postponement, but, you know, went so far as to say that that, that they're, the health protocols that they've seen from the IOC and Japan 2020 um, are, are not adequate and, and that they have, they need to be revised. Um, so, there's a lot. I mean, there, you know, it, 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 you're going to be tested every other day. Um, you're going to have to test negative before you get on your flight. These, these are the things that I've been told. Uh, just to go to the Olympics, including me, you're going to have to test negative before you get on your flight. You're going to have to test negative again when you land in Japan. Um, you know, you're going to be confined to your your room, um, and, and you're you're going to be prohibited from from going out, things like that. So. It, you know, it's not going to be much fun anyway, you know, even even if it does happen. So um, th there's a lot of things for people to weigh in this decision. And, and for some, like Alephine Tilliamuk, the, the marathoner with a, a six month old, it's even it's even more uh, to weigh. Dave, great work as always. We appreciate you coming on. You guys can check out the article out of The Washington Post right now. Dave Shining. Dave, thanks so much for your insight and your expertise. Dave, see you at the great next award ceremony. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, you award winners. Just, I mean, good Lord. Uh, Dave brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Of course, he was joining us on the Goodyear hotline. All right, uh, coming up next, an almost unbelievable story. Just when you thought the Patriots couldn't get any weirder, it has. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Don't forget, subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Just get out there and do it. Do it right now. We'll keep you updated on the Hawks, Knicks, as they are just about to tip off. Uh, we'll let you know how that game is going. But in the meantime, just when you thought we couldn't get any new developments when it comes to Spygate and the New England Patriots, we did. We have new developments, and it comes in the form of a great article out on ESPN.com. You should check it out. Our buddy Seth Wickersham uh, and Don Van, and, uh, Don Van Nata uh, together writing a breakdown 
of how this all came down with an investigation on Spygate that involves not only the Patriots, but also former President Donald Trump. We'll let Jeremy Schatt break down some of what that article told you. In May of 2008, U.S. Senator Arlen Specter from Pennsylvania had seen enough. A longtime critic of the NFL, Specter was calling out the league and its commissioner, Roger Goodell, for their investigation of the New England Patriots and the Spygate scandal. Specter said the NFL's investigation was neither objective nor adequate. Goodell had already disciplined New England for illegally videotaping the Jets' coaching signals during the season opener in 2007. Both head coach Bill Belichick and the team were fined, and New England was forced to surrender its first-round draft pick. However, Specter was still seething. A lifelong Philadelphia Eagles fan, he also wondered if the Patriots cheated in 2005 when they beat his beloved team in the Super Bowl. The senator wanted answers, but said the commissioner is stonewalling. Specter claimed Goodell was trying to protect the integrity of the league, and therefore it was a conflict of interest, saying, if the commissioner doesn't move for an independent investigation, then there will be a permanent black mark on the NFL, and the Patriots' record will be historically tainted. Specter threatened the league, saying if it didn't heed his demands, he'd push the Senate to hold hearings and would file legislation that would revoke the NFL's invaluable antitrust exemption. This spooked Goodell and NFL owners, none more than Patriots owner Robert Kraft. Inspector's 2012 memoir, Life Among the Cannibals, he writes that a mutual friend of his and Kraft's called asking him to drop his investigation, saying, if I laid off the Patriots, there'd be a lot of money in Palm Beach. The senator never identified who this person was, thus creating one of the more enduring mysteries of the Spygate scandal. However, an ESPN investigation reveals that the mutual friend who made the offer to Specter was billionaire and future U.S. President Donald Trump. Trump was a longtime friend and political donor to Specter, dating back decades. He also maintains a close 30-year friendship with Kraft. Shane Inspector, Arlen's son, revealed to ESPN, my father told me that Trump was acting as a messenger for Kraft. I'm equally sure the reference to money in Palm Beach was campaign contributions. The offer was Kraft assistance with campaign contributions. However, FEC records show that neither Kraft nor his company donated a single dollar to Arlen Specter's campaign committees. A Patriot spokesman says Kraft denies any involvement. A Trump senior advisor told ESPN, this is completely false. We have no idea what you're talking about. Eventually, Specter's inquiry into Spygate lost steam as he couldn't get his fellow senators on board. He was also battling cancer and died in 2012. Why he never named Trump is up for debate, but his son says he liked Trump. They had a warm relationship, so that may explain it. But that, of course, was a different Trump. If my father were in the Senate today, 
a lot of things would be different. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, uh, Sarah, a lot in that. Uh, and there's much. Uh, the, the article is a beefy read, admittedly, mm-hmm. but it's a very good read. And it's a reminder of how complicated all of this is. And this becomes another layer of complication that's caused in some part by the lack of transparency through the entirety of the process of how they came to what conclusions they came to. Yeah, if you're asking, you know, why is this important? It's 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 gossipy, right? It's not as relevant now because essentially this has been put to bed. But it reminds you why people still care about Spygate. And it might also provide some insight as to why the league went scorched earth on Deflategate. In this report, it tells you that Goodell persuaded two teams in the Eagles and Steelers to release statements saying that the league had done due diligence, even though executives with those teams were convinced that the NFL investigation was flawed and, according to this, quote-unquote, deliberately incurious. It was, you know, Goodell personally calling Mike Martz, the coach of the of the Rams who lost to New England in the Super Bowl that year, asking him to make a statement defending their investigation. And then Martz told ESPN the statement that was released had been significantly altered by the league. So that all of that comes out and perhaps they're so determined not to have a bad look around a second investigation of the Patriots that they go more into Deflategate than some thought was necessary. In the end, it's a bad look for the NFL. It's a reminder, Fitz, that when you have a billion-dollar business, it's going to operate like a business, not like sports. And that's what was so frustrating for Spectre as a fan was he felt like people should be able to believe in the legitimacy of what was being contested. And that was clearly not the case if the NFL was destroying evidence before an, a real investigation was done. So it doesn't really matter if it's Trump, right? It, and By all accounts, because Kraft didn't offer up money, he probably didn't know. I think it's pretty safe to say that we wouldn't be surprised if Trump offered up that he was acting on behalf of Kraft or offered up Kraft's money in advance with no intention of actually having a follow through there. He probably was manipulative in the ways that he tried to fool Spectre into thinking he'd get big money out of doing this. Either way, it's certainly juicy and it adds to yet another what is essentially a bribery attempt from Trump to a sitting politician. Uh, But with the number of things that we have to deal with that guy and everything else going on around him, I don't think this is top of the, the list in terms of potential crimes to be investigated. But it does, again, bring up so many questions about the NFL and Roger Goodell as its leader and how different teams get different treatment. All of this is is fascinating to me. To me, it's also part of the reason that Roger Goodell has so much job security because he has managed to, when you think about the fact that he managed to just make this go away, however it has gone away, uh, you're absolutely right that whatever happened behind the scenes, and there's so much hearsay involved in this, it's hard to know some of the details. But what we do know is that these are the sorts of things that shake the confidence of the general public when they look at the league. And that's got to be the league's number one fear is that you don't want people to think that Uh, they're soft on certain teams, certain teams get preferential treatment, or that they're not fully investigating everything. Although, if they were transparent, all of these questions would be answered. When they're not transparent, it only leaves me to wonder why. Mm -hmm. What are they hiding? Why do they not want people to know the information? Throughout this process, Roger Goodell, and throughout every process for Roger Goodell, he simply doesn't answer the question of why, because there is no accountability for him to answer the question of why. So the frustrating thing, I think, for a lot of this is that all of a sudden we get some information, but we won't ever get any real closure on this because the only people that know the closure, the, the information that could give us closure, either won't speak on it or simply won't tell us the truth. Yeah, I mean, and and in the end, that's, I think, 
the thing that the NFL will have to deal with in the fallout of this story, if there is any, is getting fans to trust that what they're watching and gambling on now is a huge part of it as well, is fair and being done right and can be trusted. That is the death now for a sport is the idea that you can't trust the product that you're watching and whether or not the teams that you're putting your faith and your money and your fandom behind have a fair shot. And this this just reopens that wound. Well, and a thousand percent as Sarah laughs with, with the gambling portion of it because it is such a real portion that's only going to grow. I mean, Connecticut uh, passing legislation today that uh, they expect to, that they'll be gaming on NFL games by this fall. And the more states that become involved in this, the more there are going to be real question marks about everything that happens behind the scenes when it starts impacting everybody's money. All right, uh, coming up next, we'll talk to a friend about a curse in L.A. and get you updated on all the NBA action. That's next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Hi, friends. Hi, friends. Hi, friends. Say hello to my little friend. He's my friend because we both know what it's like to have people be jealous of us. Alone. Bad. Friend. Good. And we're the best friends that anyone could have. We're the best friends that anyone can have. And we'll never, ever, 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 ever leave each other. You Can't think of a better way to do this than with ESPN NBA reporter Om Young Masuk. Om, hi, friend. Hi, friend. What up, guys? All right. See, I like, that. I like a little, the enthusiasm. A little spice to it. It wasn't high pitched. It wasn't a hi, friend, but it was enthusiastic. Now, I'll take that. I'll take the enthusiasm. <laughs> you know, don't, hey, don't, hey don't, I might have to go back to my Maryland roots and really kind of give you that twang. <laughs> so I, I saved you all this time. Uh, look, I, I went to high school in Bowie, so you know, like I've got the same. Like maybe that gives me twang. I don't know. Maryland doesn't really have that much twang, though, compared to the real South. Um, okay, so That's let's true. let's true. get after it. Are, are the Clippers are the Clippers just cursed as an organization, and it's nobody's fault? There's just somebody somewhere that has a voodoo doll. Uh oh, man. You know what? I was just saying this to somebody, and I said that uh, it's kind of like. Um, you know, you remember back in the day when they had like choose your own adventure books and you basically get to a certain page and they say, which path do you want to take? And you pick one page and you go a certain way and you pick a page and you go another way. And the Clippers always end up taking the wrong path. It's always the worst path, the hardest path. And so, so far it's just, this is, this has been the Clippers path. I mean, it's like, you know, Paul George gets off to a struggle in game one and you're like, Oh man. Cause, this his whole thing was trying to basically wipe away last year's playoffs, and that's the whole thing for the Clippers. They're trying to wipe away this bad taste left in the mouth from last year's meltdown, and now they've lost five straight playoff games, and they're staring at an 0-2 deficit. Their season and their championship hopes are not only on the line, but we don't know what's going to happen if the Clippers get bounced in the first round and what will be another embarrassing exit. Even worse, I would dare say, than last year, if they lose in the first round. This team, as we know and exist, the franchise could face drastic changes in the offseason. There's a lot on the line for the Clippers. And, and, then on, and on top of that, as you said, you add on the history of this franchise hanging over them. There's a lot for them to fight going into Dallas in Game 3. Om Young Masuka is with us here on Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You know, Om, it's fun. Well, not for Clippers fans, but for the rest of us, it's fun to chalk it up to being cursed. Somebody put a spell on them. It's their fault for tanking. But what are you actually seeing in terms of basketball? 
why does this happen? I don't usually like to go year to year, but you know, the through line is the same for this team and these stars. And when you have a shooting series or season like you did, and then to show up and just not be able to find your shot beyond the arc to look like yet you, you don't have any answers for Luca, like what basketball wise are you seeing that doesn't connect to what we think the talent of this team should do? This team's been out of sorts for a while. I am not surprised that they have kind of gotten out of the gate slow here. Um, yes, their defense has been non-existent. That's been pretty disturbing. But I would say if you hadn't been watching the Clippers closely, you would just look at the numbers and be like, oh, they're number rated, number one rated three-point shooting team in the league. And, yes, you know, they have two, um, two great elite players in Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Their defense should be elite with Patrick Beverly. But if you've been watching this team for the last month, you would know that they haven't had their guys together in a long time. They've been kind of pulling games out with reserves, really kind of playing great basketball, and Ty Lue deserves credit for that. But they were winning games that kind of almost didn't deserve to win. Um, they were kind of out of these games, and then they just didn't have this continuity. They did not have this flow. They did not have this chemistry, and they decided the path was going to be, let's just rest our guys, and we're going to use that week going into the playoffs to get it all together, and we'll show up in the playoffs. And that so far has obviously not worked. I think what you've seen, though, is that offensively, they showed some signs of life in game two. That's a huge thing for them because Kawhi Leonard, he was explosive. He had 41 points. Paul George actually looked pretty good. Um, but the defense is not there. And so they're trying to kind of like put this all together, and they don't have a margin for error now. They're down 2-0. They're going on the road to Dallas where there's going to be like, 15, 16,000 fans. In L.A., they only have 7,000. Um, this is it. I mean, if they do not show up in game three, the season is pretty much over for them, and it's going to come to a very quick end, as shocking as it, as it is. But I would have to say that for the last month, we've seen the Clippers not really play their best basketball, and it's showing up now in the playoffs when you're playing against a guy like Luka Doncic. We're talking to Om Young Masuki, ESPN NBA reporter on Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. So let's recalibrate our expectations then. Two games into the playoffs, what should the expectations now for the Clippers be for the rest of this playoff? Well, I mean, it's all about survival right now. Um, and, and offensively, as I said, I think if there's one thing they can take into game three that would give them some confidence, it was that their offense showed spurts and moments of playing the way they can play. Um, Terrence Mann kind of, and I'm not trying to pin everything on Terrence Mann. All the Clippers' hopes are on Terrence Mann. No, but Terrence Mann gives them something at times that they don't have. They can cha- he can change the energy of the game. He can rebound the ball and push the pace. They really have two guys that kind of do that. It's him and Rajon Rondo outside of Kawhi and PG. And so Terrence Mann is this young, fresh legs who can also defend. They have trouble stopping penetration. This isn't just Luka Doncic. Luka Doncic is putting up all-world type of numbers, but they can't stop Tim Hardaway Jr. They can't stop Finney Smith. They can't stop these three-point shooters. I mean, last year, the Mavericks shot, I think, 36% from behind the arc in the first round against the, against the Clippers. It is 50% after two games, uh, according to ESPN stats and info. That is a number that the Clippers cannot live with. Defensively, they have to find something. they got to be on the same page. Because if they're giving up like an open dunk to Willie Cauley-Stein and Serge Ibaka and Rajon Rondo and Paul George are looking at each other like whose fault it is, this is going to be a quick exit. It's going to feel just like it did in those last few games against Denver when the Clippers were out of it and the meltdown was on and they just bowed out in epic fashion. 
It's Hafran with Om Young Masuki, ESPN NBA reporter here on Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz with you on ESPN Radio. Uh, we got to let you go, but I have a quick question for you. Can you try to put into perspective what we're seeing with Luca? You know, I think uh, the Clippers, I think, felt confident going into this series because they handled the, the Mavericks last year in six games. But Luca was outstanding in that first round series. And when you take another shot, at a superstar like Luka Doncic, you're playing with fire because, yes, you handled him in six games last year, but he was outstanding in, his, in, his, in that playoff experience, and now he's only going to be better, and I think that's what we've seen. His swagger is, like, on an all-time high. I've seen the all-time great. I've seen Michael Jordan in Madison Square Garden. Luka Doncic is a swagger. When he walks around, he's talking trash to Patrick Beverly. He's talking trash to the fans. He's loving this, and I think the Mavericks are feeding off of it. It's Larry Bird-like, but even better because, I mean, Larry Bird was an unbelievable player, all-time great. But the way Luka moves, the way he can get to his shots, the way he can score and do whatever he wants, he's the best player on the floor, and that's a lot when you're saying that you got Kawhi Leonard on the floor as well. You guys can follow him on Twitter at NotoriousOHM. Om young Masuk, man, we appreciate you joining us. Bye, friend. Bye, friend. Bye, friend. Oh, look at that. Yes. Right up there. That's what I'm oh, talking about. ESPN Radio presented <laughs> by Progressive Insurance. Progressive's Home Quote Explorer gives you multiple quote options so you can pick what's right for you. See for yourself. All you got to do is go to Progressive.com. All right. There's so much going on in the world of sports. We got to get to a bunch of it, so we'll do it only the way we can. Quickies next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. There's a lot going on. When there's a lot going on, we like to be... Uh, you know, the refined quality, highbrow people that we are and uh, cover those things the way only we can with quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. Sarah, you know what? They say that nobody's watching anything. They say the ratings are plummeting everywhere. They say nobody seems to be interested in watching live sports at the same clip. But then, but then, no, there are some leagues that are doing incredibly well in the ratings Let's give some love to the WNBA, which so far this year is looking at a massive increase in their ratings, up 74% so far this year versus 2020. A huge, huge bump for that league in the ratings and a continued rise for the league year in and year out as more and more people are exposed to the product. Yeah, I mean, Fitz, we could scream it from the rooftops over and over, but we know what it takes to get people to adopt something that's newer. And we often don't accept and acknowledge what it took for men's professional sports to achieve what they have. Crazy investment from taxpayers into into stadiums, crazy investment from politicians and leaders in the community to, to, to you know, offer it up as something, to fund it, to make it important. And then we expect women's sports to just catch up without all that. So NBA, uh, you know, lending a hand in their support, ESPN having the rights and telling everyone where to watch and how to watch and here's why you should care, that matters. And it's piling up year after year. And and I I hope everyone just gets on board because, um, as Sue Bird has said, just you don't have to like it, but don't poison the well. And the people who are still out there using it as a butt of jokes, I just saw a guy down in Phoenix, a radio guy, try to use the WNBA as a butt of a joke and then try to dig himself out of a hole. It's weak. It's so weak, and it means that you haven't been watching because the product is fantastic. By the way, the opening weekend produced the second and third largest ratings ever for WNBA Mm -hmm. regular season games. 
and your Chicago Sky, turns out, uh, are a massive draw. Whenever the Sky are on TV, it looks like it does big numbers. And I want to say this for anyone that, that you know doesn't consume a lot of NBA. The NBA and the WNBA both are defined so often in popular media by their TV ratings. And an increase is a great thing. But that's a small fraction of where this audience comes from. Yep. The digital marketing behind these leagues is really incredible. And it's where a huge portion of the ratings come from. And, mm-hmm. you know, frankly, I'll go back and say that we've seen a lot of that from ESPN with some of the digital properties that have been built around the WNBA specifically. The numbers are huge for the league, so it's doing incredibly well. All right, next up on the list. Quickies. The match is back yet again. We are getting a bunch of guys playing golf together that are celebrities. That's, you know, this is the easiest way to describe it. But yes, the match always gets a bunch of attention. And now we're getting uh, four people that always get attention is Tom Brady, uh, Phil Mickelson, Bryson DeChambeau, and Aaron Rodgers will be going at each other in this uh, tag team matchup on golf July 6th on TNT. Sarah, I am actually genuinely interested to see if Mickelson Brady versus DeChambeau and Rodgers creates the same level of hype as the match did last year. Because remember, last year there was such a vacuum in the sports calendar. That is not Mm -hmm. the case now as it will be right in the thick of the summer. But we're also going to be dealing with the NBA uh, and the NHL going through their playoff process all the way into July. So I'll be interested to see if this gets the same level of hype and ratings. Well, you're right about that. And there's a likelihood that other things will take some some precedence over it. But the casting has been done to perfection. You've got Aaron yeah. Rodgers, who's a swirl of coverage now, as it's will he or won't he play for the Packers. You've got Phil Mickelson coming off, winning the PGA Championship, oldest to do so, uh, winning a Master for the first time in a number of years, and a guy who's great sound, always good commentary. you got Tom Brady coming off a Super Bowl win, and then you throw in the wild card, the very hated Bryson DeChambeau. You should also be sending a check the way of Brooks Kepka because he just created a fervor around a viral video of a, you know, leaked video of him just rolling his eyes, showing frustration, revealing just how much he hates Bryson DeChambeau, and the feeling is mutual. So the trash talk is already there. Brooks immediately messages Aaron Rodgers about being teammates with Bryson. Bryson, Sorry, bro. And then Bryson writes back, it's nice to be living rent-free in your head, to which Brooks responds with a video where someone keeps calling uh, DeChambeau Brooksy, and he gets incredibly frustrated. So then Phil Mickelson jumps in, and he says, you know, uh, I think there's something going on here. Hold on, let me find the exact line. I feel like I'm in the middle of something and should step aside, except they want the current PGA champ, which is him. And then you got throwing down like the full real gauntlet, Bryson messaging Tom Brady. Once Aaron Rodgers and I take you down, you'll feel just as deflated as those balls were in the AFC championship game with a Photoshop of a giant. I don't know if it's Photoshopped or real giant deflated ball. I mean, this it's already peak levels just casting alone. They nailed it. Yeah, that you're a thousand percent right about that. If we get this level of trash talk on social media all the way up to it, who cares about the golf? Like everything else will have paid off uh, tenfold through the process of it. I'm still wondering, though, if maybe any of this is just manufactured. Like maybe maybe Kepka and, and Bryson are just like laughing at all of us through the process. That's what I keep hoping is that they're actually sitting together in the clubhouse uh, afterwards having cheap beer, laughing at uh, the way we all run after them. Let's get to the next story. Quickies. And this... Adam Vinatieri's swan song is we now know that the great kicker has decided to step away from the game. And to give him really some of the love he deserves, we thought we would uh, give you a couple of highlights from some of the best moments for Adam. This is to advance to the AFC Championship game. Come on! Wow! 
Wow. The Patriots win it. 16-13 in overtime. Gil Santos, 98.5 The Sports Hub, Patriots Radio Network on the call. And Emily is our producer extraordinaire today. And of all the kicks she could pick for Vinatieri, she kicks... She picks the one that I still have nightmares about. There's no such thing as a tuck. It was a fumble, and that was the actual kick that cost my beloved Raiders a dynasty. Like, had the Raiders not lost that game, they were obviously going to go on to Patriot-level success for the next 10 years. It all changed because of that one kick. I'm I'm sorry. Uh... Are you? (laughs) Not really. (laughs) I think it was funny that that's the clip we decided can we can we play what a different tumultuous. one? And we play a different kick. Give us an, any yeah. other kick, so that's out of my mind. Adam Vinatieri, forty-eight yard field goal attempt, set to go. Snap, ball down, kick up, kick is on the way, and it is good. It's good. It's good. Adam Vinatieri booms a forty-eight yard field goal, and the game is over. And the Patriots are Super Bowl champions. The Patriots are Super Bowl champions. The Team of the National Football League. Again, Gil Santos, 98.5, the Sports Hub, Patriots Radio Network, on the call there as the Patriots won Super Bowl XXXVI. So, you know, good for them. Well, honestly, let's give him a little props. Let's not make this about you. Incredible career. <laughs> incredible to play to 48 years old. Incredible to be in the league for, you know, a quarter of a century. Incredible to you know, survive the ups and downs of being a kicker. And we saw down the stretch how tumultuous, I'd say even turbulent, the the last stretch was. Um, just really incredible also to think about the fact that he ended up being a Colt longer than a Patriot. It's kind of wild. Yeah, uh, the number of clutch kicks he made in his career, absolutely incredible. And uh, going to be a tough decision someday in life on, when the Hall of Fame committee has to decide how to value guys like that because there's no doubt. Oh, that he's... should be clear. He's the all-time leading scorer. Yeah, but uh, kickers in the Hall of Fame don't always have the best success rate. You know, we'll see how that plays moving forward. All right, coming up, Sarah sat down with the Cubs. Great. You'll hear part of it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, and as always, the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Professional. 3-0 is the score of the Cubs over the Pirates. And yet somehow Anthony Rizzo is in two places at the same time. It's theater of the mind, folks. I spoke to him earlier, but he's here now. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. I kicked Jason Fitz out, and I decided to talk to the Cubs captain and the greatest relief pitcher of all time, Anthony Rizzo. Rizzo, early on in the season, uh, things weren't looking good. Runs and batting average among the lowest in the league. Then all of a sudden, there's this pivot point after which the team has great success. Is there a moment you can point to, a, a rousing speech, a change in the lineup, something that changed? Man, I, I can't pinpoint one thing. I just think that as we settled in, uh, as everyone settled in, the whole team, and and kind of relaxed, and certain guys had a little bit of success to be able to get them to relax a little bit has really helped. And um, I think you've just seen it with with everyone, our starting pitching, our bullpen, the guys who have come up to help and kind of solidify themselves early to be to be guys going forward. So, and then offensively, same thing. We, uh, a lot of us got off to slow starts, and uh, I think just everyone kind of having a couple good games, getting to be able to relax, and things starting things start leveling out. And we have good at good guys here with great attitudes, so that's definitely helped. I know it's easy to have fun and good energy when you're winning, but it also feels like sometimes one goes before the other. And with this team, especially, it just feels like when you guys are having fun with each other, the baseball gets better. Does some of that then have to do with the new guys? You got to get them 
in on the handshakes and in on, you know, the, the fun yeah. stuff so that it feels like you're all more connected. Definitely. And I think, uh, it's just, you know, credit to all of us for being here and, and credit to the guys coming in that have really bought into this culture and, you know, you get them to be themselves as fast as you can and good things happen. Um, you know, not when guys come into different places and thinking they have to be someone else that they're not, uh, it, it usually is detrimental to them, um, which is then there for the team. So all the guys coming in, just letting them relax and be themselves and accepting that themselves is good here. And, and that's what we like. And all the guys that haven't been here that came in and that have been getting called up and have been uh, with us since opening day has just been, it's a really good group of, of older young guys, I guess. So yeah. to say. Uh, maybe it's the, uh, the, the body armor sport water. Are you just perhaps secretly putting your new sponsored item into the water bottles of teammates? Was that the pivot point? Uh, I mean, I do have right next to me <laughs> and he's drinking it. <laughs> so whenever we're hanging out in the room on the road, uh, I'll always give some to the guys, but it could be the secret. Definitely passing it out to the guys and the sport. <laughs> it definitely doesn't hurt. You get a lot of uh, opportunities to to sponsor things, to be involved in things. You are super involved in the community and charitable stuff. How do you pick and choose where you spend your time and where you spend your sponsor efforts? Yeah, I think it's, it starts with the company and the people uh, behind it. And Body Armor for me is kind of similar to my career with the Cubs, seeing them grow. Um, being a very small company, even before I was there with, with obviously Kobe and having his name attached to it has been amazing, but just seeing them grow over the years, it's like the Cubs growing over the years from 12, 13, 14 to being really good in 15. And now body armor, it's the same thing that we're, that we're in a position to, you know, be the number one sports drink here in a few years. And that's our goal. And it's been fun to be part of that. I want to talk about David Ross as a manager. Boog Shambi said he's a sneaky a-hole and Rossi has admitted that that is true. So I want to know what do you guys do that sort of triggers and turns him from grandpa Rossi that we all love into, you know, sneaky a-hole or, or red faced manager. He just expects perfection. And, you know, we all do. And if you chase, when you chase perfection, you're always going to probably usually end up coming on the short end of it. So but it just fundamentals, um, doing the right things, doing the little things that people don't notice except, you know, in the dugout. So those are the types of things that definitely irk him and get him off his rocker. So <laughs> but it's been good so far. He's been really good at communicating with us and uh, we've had fun playing for him. When it's his rocker, it's a, it's a literal rocking chair as Grandpa Rossi. He literally has to get out of it and creaky knees. Um you know, uh, I'm, I'm trying to imagine the differences between being just a teammate where he's still a stickler for that stuff. And we knew he was from the day he got here um, and being a manager. So what is the biggest difference with your relationship or maybe his relationship with the team now that he's the skipper? It's just the day to day interactions of, of managing all the players now. Um, there's 26 guys that he's got the command of and um you know, all the decisions that are made, the playing time, guys should be pitching more, guys shouldn't be, should have left me in longer, I should have had that bat. All the things that go into, you know, we're all, all of us in the big leagues want to want to perform and, and think, you know, think we are here for a reason. So we all want the opportunities and that's not, can't be easy, you know, managing that. I, I don't know what that's like, but um, 
he's done a really good job so far of getting everyone in and, and playing time wise and uh, just managing all the personalities. You said you can't imagine that, but you're you're basically a second manager. And it's so clear from the way you interact with your teammates and rile them up to how you even interact with opponents and players on other teams. You such have such a good rapport with people. Have you ever had a teammate that you absolutely hated? And as the captain and as that kind of glue guy, did you have to just fake your way through it or was it was it just stay away from him? Uh yeah, I mean, I think I don't think I absolutely hate it. That's strong for me. Just the nature of who I am, but there's definitely guys over the years that you just don't gel with and that's okay. I mean, I'm sure you could ask anyone relates to this, right? I mean, you work with someone for, we're, we're together for about eight months every day straight. I want to rip, you know, even my best friend's heads off. It's <laughs> right. But I think the beauty of baseball is the mutual respect of when you get on that field, you know, personality wise aside, I want whoever on our team to be the best they can that day. Cause that's what it's all about is winning. And, when you have that common goal, it doesn't matter if you love each other, hate each other. Been on teams where not a lot of guys like each other, and I've been on teams where we all love each other. And but when you get on that field, you can't tell the difference. Uh, what's the biggest difference between having Hoyer at the helm versus Theo? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's just playing baseball, and we play in between the lines and the clubhouse. Uh, Jed, you know, conversations with Jed are always easy. Same with Theo, and um, I think with the transition and with, with Jed and knowing everything here, knowing the ins and outs of the Cubs and knowing all of us players has been uh, nice for us to just not have uh, someone come in completely new and just, you know, with no ties to you. So it's, it's been pretty nice so far and we'll see how it goes. You were uh, drinking through bareheads uh, incidents, I think thus far, although maybe they, maybe Jed's just better at keeping those behind the scenes. Uh, you know, Jed Hoyer also talked to the media about being frustrated with the vaccination levels, not hitting the 85% and being able to change some protocols and lower restrictions. What are the conversations around the clubhouse or maybe from Rossi about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that the beauty is with this vaccine, it's so tricky. Um, you know, guys, guys make their own decisions and, if, if, you know, we support guys who didn't get it and we support guys who did get it. And that's just what it is. And I think that, you know, with the competitive advantage, obviously staying on the field is the number one priority always. And uh, that's everyone's priority. And that's what we want to do is stay on the field. So if you do get sick, uh, it definitely takes you off the field and it's, it, it's disadvantage to us. But the beauty of all of this is that, like I said, is the guys who didn't get it, have that choice and the guys who did get it have that choice and you're going to support them uh we're running out of time here so we're going to a speed round uh more likely to make a return two chains or anthony rizzo perfect era pitcher uh two chains i think i retired whoa whoa breaking news retiring (laughs) as a pitcher uh will kevin ever get his own instagram uh probably not probably not sorry disappointing fans everywhere uh have you added any new songs to your karaoke set list i haven't sang in a while um with covid it's tough to to get the groups and share the mic so it's been a while you got Um, a lot of new songs to add to the repertoire that have uh, taken hold over the last year uh why is whoop there it is the team's home run song this is way out ahead of the scoop there it is ads you guys just tapped into that nostalgia Uh, what what's that about um, I don't know. I think Dante just started playing it one day and it stuck, but it's funny because Jock hit that home run yesterday and our dugout was going scoop. There it is. <laughs> oh, Why do you great. say that? Uh, and finally, 
any band or musician can play your next World Series winning party, who is it? Probably stick with Eddie. Uh, good choice. Yeah, he, uh, he's been with us through thick and thin. He loves the Cubs. He's a good friend. So uh, definitely, definitely want to get him back in the backyard again and uh, jam out and have some fun. Yeah, I love that uh, usually when you're asking for things like that, it's kind of a, a tough get. But when, when it's uh, Eddie Vedder and he loves the Cubs like that, he's been hanging out with the team this much. Easy peasy. Now we just got to win another World Series. Uh, thanks to Anthony Rizzo for joining me earlier. Yes, indeed, he did not do that interview from the dugout. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance, making it easy to bundle your home and car insurance. Coming up next on Spain and Fitz, Nick Subdelta low blow to Trey Young. We'll explain next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. The opportunities that come with being follically challenged, it's Mike Golick Jr. It's our good buddy, Gojo, who is known for making a comment or two about his receding hairline or The Golden Domer. No longer existent. Yes, the Golden Domer of ESPN. And his response to what's going on at MSG tonight is, this is why they only let y'all into the playoffs once a decade. And this is in response... Response to a piece of paper going around MSG that says tonight's chant is Trey is balding. And it says at only 22 years old, Trey's hair is thinning at an alarmingly fast pace and he has a bald spot forming on the crown of his head. This will be a much more effective chant to take advantage of home court and throw Trey off his game. By the way, it's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz were presented by Progressive Insurance. Guests joined us on the Goodyear Hotline. Fitz. Fair game. I mean, to me, it's less about the balding and more about the fact that his hairstyle looks like if you took a lollipop and just rolled it in hair, right? It's not the balding part. It's what he chooses to do with the hair that is there. And again, I just don't know if this is the angle I would take if I were Knicks fans on the opponent, especially if he were the one that torched us in the finish in the last game. I'll be honest. When I first saw the piece of paper, I thought maybe it was an over-exaggeration or somebody was making it up. Like, I thought maybe it was a, a lie, and then video has now posted uh, that shows the garden <laughs> saying it to Trey Young. Here's the one thing, though: like, why poke the belly of the beast? Like, you do? Do you really think that that's going to get in his psyche? Yeah, I've never like, heard it we, before. It's the first time. Do we think that he's so <laughs> soft that he's going to sit on the bench and say, "Guys, I'm just really having a hard time playing because they're talking about my hair." Like, Trey Young isn't me. <laughs> he he should be able to at least handle this, right? So. Uh, and, and look, it's working because at the half, by the way, Atlanta's up by 13. So uh, I would uh, yeah, say that. Also, he's got 20 points. Guess how many the star for the Knicks, who we earlier spoke about needing to have a good game, lest the MSG faithful turn on him. Guess how many Julius Randle has? Uh, tell me. Two. Oh! Two. He's a minus 17. Oh, I mean, that's just. Like, there's no easy way to, and, and it's painful to watch because Julius Randle, as we mentioned earlier, becomes only the second player to ever win most improved player after his seventh season or later in the NBA. So you're talking about somebody that's had such a dynamic rise and yeah, has been fun and easy, easy to, root to root for. for and yep. part of what's made the Knicks fun this year. And then you, you see him just absolutely collapsing in this playoff series so far. And that's, you know, the worst thing imaginable because they will turn on him in the garden. They will turn on him if he doesn't step it up. And two points isn't going to be enough. And, and in the meantime, what we said coming into the game is that if Trey was huge, this only increases the villain output here. Well, that's he is huge. Atlanta's beating the Knicks handily right now. And Trey Young's a big part of why. So this is worst case scenario for the garden. 
I'm also very much concerned about Julius Randle's hairline. Have we checked if he has a bald spot? Because they might start handing out different papers at halftime, and he could be the one getting it at the second half based on that two-point number. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast, by the way. You can get digital-only stuff that you can only find on the pod and all the stuff that you miss on the show. Um, and the other game tonight, we also have... Just an absolute beatdown. Not surprising. The number one seed, the Sixers, easily handing the Wizards. It's 94-78 right now in that Mm. one. Seth Curry limped off the court for the Sixers. He's being evaluated in the locker room. That's no good. But you got the big two in Embiid and Simmons, 22 points apiece. Harris with 19. uh, Just handling uh, the Wizards, who right now are are surviving on the back of Bradley Beal, who's got 30 points. So that one uh, doesn't look like much of a contest. We'll keep you updated, of course, on what's going on with the Knicks and Atlanta. But we've got that Memphis-Utah game tonight. We mentioned it briefly earlier, Fitz, but I do think worth discussing again the dynamic for – for Donovan Mitchell's return. You know, he comes into a very difficult situation being reinserted into lineup in the middle of a playoff series. Uh, and, and also perhaps still carrying a little bit of resentment for a team that had him playing, practicing, warming up and sort of blindsided him with the decision not to play him. And, and I will tend to go with doctors and experts and whatever they think is best in the long term. But the way that went down was difficult for a lot to imagine, even his teammates who were surprised after playing with them all week, that he wasn't going to go. Yeah, well, and, and part of me just, I'm, I never want to be a conspiracy theorist. Part of me just feels like, did they feel like they could win that game without him? Why put him at risk? And now suddenly it's like, well, no, nope, turns out we do need him. It, it, maybe they underestimated Memphis in that process. Felt like they could get a little extra day of rest out of it. Uh, but this is really worst case scenario for the Jazz, too, to be down 0-1 to a Memphis team that comes in with so much confidence, and particularly Dylan Brooks, who's been a delight that we didn't, I don't think a lot of people expected, uh, mm-hmm. came into that game one performance with 31 points. That's most by a Grizzlies player in his postseason debut, and was absolutely unstoppable. Like, we know Ja's going to do Ja things, but to see Dylan Brooks do that was absolutely part of what was electric to watch out of that Grizzlies team, and what's all eyes are going to be on, you know, can he replicate that? Because Donovan Mitchell coming in isn't enough. Donovan Mitchell's going to have to come in and play well for them to beat this Memphis team, and I can't believe I'm saying that. Yeah, you and I both, I think, underestimated the Grizzlies and and where they are in their, I guess, journey, not to steal a line from The Bachelor. Uh, But they are ahead of where I expected them to be, and we, we have talked all season, maybe unfairly so, about wanting proof of concept from the Jazz, right? I mean, it's it it's just what happens in NBA basketball. There are certain teams you give and certain players you give the benefit of the doubt for, and then you need the up-and-coming stars to prove it. And Donovan Mitchell and this particular Jazz team is is in that position right now. We want to see what looked like a tremendous squad on both sides of the ball in the regular season, translate that to playoff wins. Didn't look good in the first one, but when a team plays poorly to get a loss like that, it actually makes you feel better than if they're shooting well and, and, you know, playing effective basketball and still can't get the W. They have a lot that they can fix. They shot just 25% from three point range. Second lowest mark of the whole season. They gave up tons of turnovers that they normally wouldn't. They got into foul trouble. They gave up too many offensive boards, too many second chance shots for the the Grizzlies they didn't have Donovan Mitchell you add all that together and the hope is that for me selfishly who wants to see a good series that they can change things starting tonight well and I think you know it's a recurring theme when we talk about playoff basketball the more aggressive team the team that comes out with more 
uh, turbo button, as I always like to say, seems to be in control from the outset. And that's where the Memphis Grizzlies were in that game. They were simply more aggressive. They were taking it to Utah. And that's what we've seen tonight, you know, is the, the Hawks are taking it to the Knicks. You know, the one thing I would say, though, throughout the course of what we've seen today, what we'll see tonight, you mentioned earlier, Philly's killing Washington, and that's not a surprise. What's nice is that that's maybe the only series right now that is just not a surprise. Like, there's not much there. There's not I'm much sorry, meat Net on Celtics? the Celtics. I'm so sorry. Have you already? Oh yeah, that Brooklyn, that oh yeah. I forgot about that. It's so forgettable. So, that those two series, <laughs> but in a world where the NBA for years has been so predictable, this year in the playoffs is absolutely the opposite for the majority of what we're watching. I do agree with you. Uh, in a world where we usually used world. to say, "Okay, we know it's going to be Cavs Warriors, and this is what's going to happen." We talked about this last night, Fitz. I am uh, so. There's a place in Chicago called the Wiener's Circle. It's known for a number of things. One, it's got wieners and late-night eats. Two, if you order a chocolate milkshake, you are not getting something that you drink. I'll let you find out for yourself sometime when you come here what you do get. And three, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog did one of the greatest comedic bits ever when he attended uh, the Wiener's Circle. They challenged me to make a playoff bracket, and if I got none right and then they took it away and said if I only got one wrong Everyone in Chicago gets free hot dogs for whatever day I choose from the Wiener Circle. The pressure. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, I don't know. Who, who can know? This year is too difficult and there are wieners on the line. That's too much pressure for me, Sarah. Like, always run from the pressure. wieners. Spain and Fitz, the podcast.